Well, this morning we are uh, at the crucifixion, so uh, interesting the way the timing for our Sunday school class has worked in relation to, you know, Easter. So we just studied the resurrection last week, and, and now we're backing up to the crucifixion. Uh, but you can learn a lot about an event by witnessing the responses to that event. You learn some about the event and some about the people who are witnessing that event. For instance, in the Dixon household, there is a lot to be learned when we announce that we're having beans and rice for dinner. All sorts of things we glean from that. Not only which children like beans and rice, because we know that already, but which children have been listening to the lectures about being respectful to their parents, which children have been listening to the lectures about the fact that food is not primarily for your taste buds, all these things we learn just by watching their responses. And that's really what we are going to see as Mark gives us his account of the crucifixion. He does it primarily through the responses of all the parties involved. So we're going to see the responses of all the different people that were involved as well as the response from God himself. Before he does that, though, uh, he's going to give us a a quick synopsis of the facts of the crucifixion, which are very helpful. And uh, this is recorded, of course, in all four Gospels. If you want to note in your Bible, you know, all the parallels, there's the, the parallel accounts of the crucifixion. We'll be pulling from a few of those as well. But we are going to focus primarily on Mark's account and and. The responses, and what we'll find is, is not shocking necessarily, right? Most people will find a reason to mock a crucified Savior. It doesn't match with their, their thoughts on what a Savior ought to be. But we'll see that God himself affirms Christ's work on the cross, and there are a few who accept it for, for what it really was. So the first thing we're going to see as we get into the crucifixion, Mark's account, chapter 15, we'll start in verse 22, is he's going to give us the the five W's. He's being a good journalist here. We're going to get the who, what, when, where, and why, although not in that order. So read with me, if you will, starting in verse 22. Then they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And he was numbered with transgressors. So there they are, the the five W's. The first thing Mark gives us is the where. And... Golgotha is an Aramaic word. That's why Mark translates it for his non-Jewish readers. It means the place of the skull. And we don't really know where this is. The two most commonly accepted sites are Gordon's Calvary and the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. But we don't really know exactly where Golgotha was. The important point about the where is that the Romans crucified their victims in a place that was in public prominence. This would have been on one of the roads into or out of Jerusalem and just outside the city gates. They did this as a deterrent. They wanted people to see their crucified victims because that sent a message to the people they'd conquered. So wherever Golgotha actually was, it was just outside Jerusalem on one of the main thoroughfares into and out of the city. Now the next thing we get is the what in verse 23 and 24. And before Jesus is even crucified, we're told they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh. Now myrrh at that time was used as a painkiller. In fact, Roman soldiers used it to treat battle wounds. And they would often mix myrrh with wine before they crucified a victim, maybe to make them more compliant during the crucifixion process. Probably wasn't out of mercy. And wine is bitter, 
In fact, in uh, Matthew's account, rather than using the term myrrh, he just says they gave Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. That is something bitter. And in Matthew's account, he said after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. So Jesus took a little, realized what was in it by the bitterness, and then refused the rest. See, Christ wanted to have full faculties available to do what needed to be done. He didn't want to rely on a narcotic but on his obedience and love for the Father and what was coming. So he refused that. And then we get to the first four words of verse 24. And they crucified him. That's it? That's all we get once we build up to this climax of Jesus' ministry is four simple words, and they crucified him. Now Mark doesn't have to give any details about what this involved because both the Jews and And his non-Jewish audience would have been very familiar with this practice. So he simply gives us the statement, and they crucified him. The next thing we get is the when in verse 25. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. Now Jews told time, reckoning from about 6 a.m. in the morning. So the third hour is 9 a.m. So Mark tells us that Jesus ends up being put on the cross at 9 a.m. Now remember, all of this started only... A few hours before, somewhere between 9 and 10 o'clock at night on Thursday night. And in those few hours between 9 at night and 9 the next morning, Jesus has been arrested, put through three mock Jewish trials, three Roman kangaroo courts, sentenced to death, marched outside the city, and is about to be put on a cross. That's a pretty swift miscarriage of justice for a 12-hour time span. But just as important as what time of day it was is the fact that this is Passover. Now, that's not listed in this verse, but obviously in the context of what we've been reading and studying over the past several weeks, this is Passover. And that's going to be important because there's a lot of parallels between what happens to Christ on the cross and the celebration of Passover. Remember, Passover was the Jewish remembrance of the exodus from Egypt when they were freed from their slavery and bondage to the Egyptians. And then it also looked forward to their eventual spiritual freedom from bondage to sin. And we're going to see that that has a lot of parallels in what happens during the few short hours that Jesus is on the cross. So that's the when. Next we get the why, verse 26. The inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. It was customary for Romans when they crucified someone to put the charge, the reason that this person was being put to death in this hideous manner, right above the victim. Again, this was a deterrent. Anyone walking by, which would be anybody going into and out of the city, would be able to look up and go, I don't want to be that guy, and that's what he did. I shouldn't do that. It was a deterrent. But it was supposed to be the crime. Note that in Jesus' case, there was no crime. Pilate himself had declared Jesus innocent no less than four times during the various trials that he went through. He told the chief priests, I find no guilt in this man. There's no reason to put him to death. He's innocent. You take care of him. I don't want anything to do with it but he was politically maneuvered into putting a man on a cross that he personally believed to be innocent. And so what was probably a way to get back and and poke a little bit in the chests of the the Jewish priests, instead of a crime over Jesus' head, he puts an identity. He said, this man is on the cross not because of what he did, but because of who he is. He puts an identity on there. Now the priests were not happy with this. In John's account, in John 19, 21, we read, So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, 
I have written. <laughs> he says, no, this is what you get. You push me into a corner, and this is, this is part of the response. John's account tells us that it was written in three languages, Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. Would have looked something like this. That meant that anybody that passed by was going to know exactly who this man was and why he was on the cross. Whether you were a Jew, a Roman, or someone visiting from another country for the Passover, you could read at least one of these three languages. Interesting that God used one petty, immoral man's grudge, Pilate, against another group of petty, immoral men, the religious leaders, to proclaim an absolute truth that neither group believed. None of them believed it, and yet it was the truth, and it ends up over Jesus' head. I'm hanging on the cross, not because of what I've done, but because of who I am, the king. And finally, we get the who, verse 27 and 28. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says he was numbered with transgressors. Now, the middle of anything in both the Jewish and the Roman cultures was the, the place of prominence. There's three supposed criminals to be crucified that day. And whether it was Pilate's direction or the centurions, we don't really know. But Jesus was put in the place of prominence. He was put in the middle to say, of these three, this is the worst. And yet he was the only one that didn't have a crime above his head. It also fulfills Isaiah 53, 12. That's what Mark refers to there in verse 28. Isaiah 53 is an entire chapter that looks forward to the crucifixion. Others are out there as well that are mentioned in all the gospel accounts, Psalm 22, Psalm 69. There's plenty of entire pieces of scripture that point to this event. And so there's the facts. The who, what, when, where, and why of the crucifixion. But now Mark's going to turn to what he really wants to talk about after giving us the sort of quick rundown of, of how things came about. And first we're going to see the people's response to the crucifixion, and he's going to give us the response of four different groups of people that were there at the scene. And the first one is the Roman soldiers. Now there's his back in verse 24. We skipped the latter half of that verse. After it says, and they crucified him, we read, and dividing up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. And so the Roman soldiers are the first response we get, and theirs is one of indifference. They just don't care. As soon as they have nailed this man to the cross and hoisted his battered and bloody body up to an upright position, they start playing games. Totally indifferent to the man who is suffering indescribable physical pain just a few feet from where they're tossing the dice. Completely indifferent. Part of this was because they had seen dozens of crucifixions having been assigned to this duty. So there's some that's just numb to it. And part of it is the fact that Jesus is a Jew. They're not really concerned with what happens to the Jews. As long as the conquered people stay in line, eh. Indifference. Now the next group we see is the general public. And theirs is not one of indifference. Verse 29. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. And come down from the cross. The public has a response that is quite opposed to indifference. They have scorn and contempt. 
When it says they were wagging their heads, that's a Jewish idiom for just reviling. I mean, they are upset. Now, why the switch? Just a few short days earlier, as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, people were crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, proclaiming Jesus to be their long-awaited Messiah. They were throwing their own coats on the ground so that he could walk in without touching the dirt, and now they're reviling him and mocking him in his death throes. Why the sudden change? That's a pretty huge 180 to pull. Jesus hasn't done anything that would sort of invite this scorn on himself. They've heard him teach, those that were in Jerusalem. We walked through those teachings over the past few weeks. When he was on the Temple Mount, they heard him defend every question that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes had to ask him. He hasn't said one untimely or unkind thing to anyone, and yet here they have nothing but scorn. We got to remember exactly what they were expecting. When Jesus walked in and they were throwing their coats on the ground, they thought it was their time to be saved from the Romans. That was their understanding of the Messiah. It's an ignorant one, an unscriptural one, but they expected Jesus to be a political and socioeconomic savior. They wanted him to throw off the shackles of Roman rule and lead the Jewish nation to a political and economic independence. And now he's hanging on a cross. They're angry because they feel betrayed. And they feel betrayed because they have an an ignorant understanding of what the Savior ought to be. They don't understand what God has given them in the Scriptures. It's one of ignorance. Now, interesting to note, Mark says those passing by. Well, why would anybody be passing by this site? Again, it's Passover. They're passing by on their way into Jerusalem. And you know why they're going into Jerusalem? to have their Passover lambs killed for the Passover meal. Now picture the irony here. These Jews are walking by Jesus, hanging on a cross, leading their little lambs into the temple mount to be sacrificed. And while they take their lamb by Jesus to go sacrifice the animal, they throw insults at the one actual sacrifice that the little lamb they have with them is merely a picture of. They don't get it. It's a response of ignorance, and they, they use a, a false statement about Jesus. They say, ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Well, Jesus never said that. That's a twisting of his words. He said, if you destroy this temple, meaning his body, it will be rebuilt in three days. He never claimed he was going to destroy the temple. And that false accusation comes from the religious leaders. If you remember back in Mark 14, when they're accusing Jesus before Pilate, They bring some people in to give false testimony against him and say, we heard him say he'll destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. So these people are ignorant of the scriptures themselves. They're following the Jewish leaders, and as a result, they have an incorrect understanding of the Messiah. They want him to come down. They say, save himself. They see the fact that he's on the cross as proof that he was wrong about his claims of who he was, not understanding that if he did actually come down from the cross, he only then would have been a liar. the general public. Next, Mark gives us the response from the religious leaders, verse 31, and the first part of 32. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. 
Now, the chief priests and, and the heads of the, the priestly order shouldn't have even been at the crucifixion. Because it's Passover, they have duties in the temple mount. The temple is set up with numerous places to sacrifice all these animals that are coming in. Deuteronomy 16 tells the Jews that if they were there, they needed to sacrifice their Passover lamb at the temple. So they had duties there. They shouldn't even be here, but they come to witness the spectacle of Christ on a cross, something they have been gunning for for a long time. And even though they shouldn't have been there, they would now be witnesses and have no excuse when they see what's about to happen. Now theirs is not an ignorant response like the people. These are men who from their childhood have studied the scriptures. Most of them had the majority of the first five books of the Old Testament memorized. They knew this stuff backwards and forwards. They knew every messianic prophecy. And further, they knew exactly what Jesus had been doing over the last three years during his public ministry. If you remember all the way back in the beginning of Mark when we started this book, the Pharisees sent emissaries up north to Galilee before he'd even come down to Jerusalem to start questioning him. And they've been doing this throughout his entire ministry. They know everything he's said, everything he's done, all the miracles. They don't even deny it. They say he saved others. Right? Even they can't deny that. They've seen blind people receive sight, lame people walk. They've seen him cast out demons that nobody else could. Theirs is not one of ignorance, despite the evidence, despite their scriptural knowledge and their knowledge of what Jesus has been doing for three years in his public ministry, they refuse to believe his claims about who he is. Why? Because they don't want to. It doesn't fit with their preconceived desires of the way that, that things should be in their thoughts. The way the religious system is now gives them position, power, prominence. They don't want Jesus' view of how things should be. That doesn't match their own personal desires. And so they refuse to believe despite what may be up there. Note they use two titles for him. They say, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross. That's the, the crux of their issue, is that he claimed to be both the Messiah and the King. And he did. Just a few hours earlier than that, in Mark 16, when the high priest asked Jesus, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Jesus said, I am. And a few short hours after that, when Pilate asks, are you the King of the Jews, in Mark 15 too, Jesus answered, it is as you say. He claimed both of those. And despite all the evidence that that had to be true, they refused to believe, and so they used those titles in a mocking way. And they say, really, if you were, if you were either of those, the Savior or the King, you would come down off the cross, and then we would believe you. Would they? Think about what they've already seen. Not only have they seen all the miracles that I described previously, the, the pinnacle of that was when Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead. These Pharisees have spoken to a man that Jesus called out of the tomb after he had been wrapped and buried. So if Jesus were to come down from the cross now, it would be less than that because he's not even dead yet. It would just be like another healing. They've seen tons of those. They've seen a miracle that's more than Christ coming down off the cross, and they didn't believe. In fact, after that was when they decided, we definitely have to put this guy to death. They're not going to believe based on anything because they don't want to. They are immovable in their desire to maintain their own version of what salvation ought to look like. 
They cannot fathom a savior or a king that would end up on a cross because to them that seems weak. Although if Jesus did come down from the cross, he would have failed as a savior and through disobedience to the father would have proven himself unfit to be king. And finally, we have the response of the criminals. The latter part of verse 32, those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. Now, this is interesting. You've got to think about what's going on here. These other two criminals are also on a cross. That means they've been beaten, just like Jesus had. They've been whipped, just like Jesus had. They've been nailed to a cross, just like he has. They're hanging there, and they decide that it's worth their energy to insult Jesus. Now, for crucifixion, part of the problem is asphyxiation. As you hang on the cross, your body weight held by the spikes through your hands and your feet, your shoulders would often pop out of joint, and you couldn't get breath. Asphyxiation was one of the things that weakened a crucifixion victim. In order to speak, to get a breath, you have to pull up on the, the nails That scrapes your scourged back along the vertical beam. You have to endure immense pain just to get a big enough breath to speak. And yet for these two men, it's worth the pain to suck in a breath and insult Jesus. Why? Why would they go through that? They're about to die. What's the point for them? Well, it's born strictly out of emotion. I mean, they're they're only a few hours from death and they know it. They're afraid, they're angry, they're upset, they're spiteful towards those that put them there, they're upset with themselves for ending up there. It is raw emotion, and that emotion causes them to lash out at whatever target happens to be around, and that target happens to be Jesus. A straight-up irrational response born out of their emotional state. So there's the responses Mark gives gives us. Why is that important for us? They're the exact same responses that we're going to see to the gospel today. People don't change. The people that were there and witnessed the crucifixion are examples of the exact same kind of response we see out of people today when they're exposed to the gospel. You've seen these. There are some that that are indifferent, right? They just don't want anything to do with religion. Hey, you do you. That's great for you. I don't need it. I'm going to carry on about my life. And they're just oblivious to the fact that that they (laughs) deserve judgment in front of a holy God. Indifferent. Some are ignorant. They just don't know what the gospel says. A lot of these, at least in our country, they're not completely ignorant. They're just mostly ignorant. They, They know the basics, perhaps, but their view of Christianity is not scripturally correct. They've never taken the time to dive into the scriptures themselves or to go to a a biblically-based church, their view of Christianity is one that comes from Hollywood, from a book, maybe from a friend who claims to be a Christian but doesn't live like one. So they think they know what's going on, but like the public here, they really don't. And so their response is, is one of mocking. There are also those who are just immovable. They do know the gospel. These are the people you know that have been brought up in the church or maybe in a Christian household. They know the Sunday school answers. They, they know what's in the book, but they don't believe because they don't want to. They don't want to be accountable to a holy God. They don't want to be told what they can and can't do. And so they elect not to believe despite the knowledge and the evidence that's been placed before them. 
And there are some that are just irrational. Their response whenever you bring up the gospel or Jesus is one of, of surprising emotion. And that generally comes from some bad experience they've had in the past, either with church or with someone who claimed to be a Christian. And so for them, the gospel is, brings about a raw emotional response. We need to understand that this is what we ought to expect. It ought not to surprise us when people are presented with, with a crucified Savior that they may mock because of one of these four reasons. That ought to be our expectation as those who present it to them. Well, next we see God's response to the crucifixion. This begins in 33 through 38. Read that with me. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him a drink, saying, Let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. We've seen the way the people that were at the crucifixion responded. Now we're going to see God himself respond. And this is where we ought to pay close attention. Some in this room may find yourself in one of those four categories we just described. You may respond to the gospel with indifference or ignorance or an immovable decision based on your desires or even an irrational response. If you are, if that's where you find yourself, I pray that, that you would pay attention over the next few minutes this morning because we're going to learn a lot about this event based on God's response to it. And the first thing we see is darkness. Verse 33, when the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now it's interesting that Jesus' birth was heralded with light. Right? We all know the Christmas story and the star. When Jesus was born, there was supernatural light, and now we find that as he dies, there is supernatural darkness. How do we know it's supernatural? Well, the nature of the darkness is important. And again, the, the ties to Passover are, are numerous in this event. This is one of them. This is the Passover day, remembering the exodus from Egypt. If you go all the way back to the exodus, what was the plague that came right before the tenth one? I just gave you a hint. It's darkness. Yeah. You all knew that, though. Darkness. Exodus 10, 21 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness which may be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. During that period, there was a supernatural time of darkness that only existed over the land of Egypt, not the land of Goshen where the Jews were. And it was a darkness that could be felt and that was so thick and disabling that nobody moved. They were stuck. That's not a coincidence. But there was three days of darkness right before the death of the firstborn, the tenth plague. And here on the cross, we see three hours of darkness right before the death of God's firstborn. The parallel is intentional. Some have said that it was a solar eclipse. Well, if so, it was no less supernatural because the Passover happens during a full moon. So if it was a solar eclipse, God moved the moon all the way around to the other side of the earth to make it happen. Either way, it's supernatural. God is making a statement here. 
That's the nature. What about the timing? So it says from the, the sixth hour to the ninth hour. That's from noon to 3 p.m. Now, why this period of time? Right, there has to be some significance because God doesn't do things at random. Well, again, this is where you have to understand the fact that this is the Passover. Now, the, the Mishnah, the Jewish writings that tell us how the execution of the religion was carried out, tell us that the daily sacrifice was normally offered at 3 p.m. in the afternoon. Right? There was a sacrifice every day, multiple. However, on the day of Passover, the daily sacrifice was moved to the left, and it was killed at 1.30, offered at 2.30, and they moved the daily sacrifice earlier because on Passover, they killed the Passover lamb at 3. Now, there's temple lambs being slaughtered, right, as the ones that are the ceremonial ones, but everyone is also bringing their lambs to the temple mount to get slaughtered for their own Passover meal. They had dozens of stations set up on that big temple mount that we've seen pictures of. So this period from noon to three is when everyone's coming in to have their lambs slaughtered for Passover, when the daily sacrifice happens, and all the way up to three o'clock when the Passover lamb is supposed to be killed. And God shuts it all down. Total disabling darkness drops over the entire land and no one's able to slaughter a thing. God says, you don't need those. I'm taking care of this Passover between me and my son. You don't need the animals. The timing is significant. And then finally, although that's important, although God is making a statement, hearkening back to the, the Exodus, he's preventing the animal sacrifices because they're not needed. The primary reason that this darkness exists is judgment. Judgment is associated with darkness throughout the entire scriptures, starting all the way back in Exodus. The reason God gave the Egyptians three days of judgment there, like all the plagues, is because they refused to let his people go. He was executing his judgment against them. It started then. But all throughout the Old Testament, almost any time you find a discussion of the day of the Lord or judgment for something, it is associated with darkness. For example, in Amos chapter 8, Verse 9 and 10, God is pronouncing judgment on his disobedient people. And he says this, It will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. And I will turn your festivals into mourning and your songs into lamentation for your disobedience. Darkness and judgment. You can find this in Joel chapter 2, Isaiah 13, Ezekiel 32, Zephaniah, all over the place. Judgment and darkness go hand in hand. That's what this was. The three hours of darkness on the cross is God pouring out his righteous judgment on his innocent son because it had to be given to someone for you and me. This is when Jesus experiences the full, undiluted, unfiltered, complete cup of the wrath of God instead of me. That's what's happening during this three hours. Hell the place of eternal judgment, is also described as a place of darkness. Matthew 8, 12, Matthew twenty two thirteen, Matthew 25, 30, every time Jesus mentions hell, it's called a place of utter darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's what Jesus is experiencing on the cross. That's why there's darkness. 
It was the physical symbol of the spiritual reality that was taking place between a holy God and an innocent man standing in the place of you and I because that's the judgment that we deserved. The light of the world was being covered with the darkness of my sin and yours. I like how William Hendrickson puts it. He says, The darkness meant judgment, the judgment of God upon our sins, his wrath, as it were, burning itself out in the very heart of Jesus. So that he, as our substitute, suffered most intense agony, indescribable woe, terrible isolation and forsakenness. Hell came to Calvary that day, and the Savior descended into it and bore its horrors in our stead. That's God's response to the crucifixion. Holy judgment. And make no mistake, as this is happening during that period, moment by moment by moment, as Christ is experiencing God's wrath, it wasn't the nails that held him there. Only one thing kept Jesus on the cross. Love. Love for his Father expressed in obedience to the command he had been given and love for me and you because this is what was necessary. That's what kept him there. Every minute, God was pouring out a holy wrath. We see this in the agony of the Son. That's the next response. At about the ninth hour, verse 34, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Again, this is Aramaic, translated for Mark's readers, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus' response to the judgment being poured out is heartbreaking. He's being forsaken by his father. Their relationship is being cut off. His ability to interact with his father as such has been suspended. Now we need to be careful. He's, he has not ceased being the son of God. He always has been, always will be, and was in that instance. It's his relationship that is being completely broken. I have six sons, two daughters. None of them will ever be anything but my children. That's impossible. Right? They are my progeny. That's just a, a fact of their genetic and biological existence. They can never be anything but that, but there are circumstances where their relationship with me could be broken. That's what's going on on the cross. Jesus is still the Son of God, but they are not in relationship as Father and Son. John 17.3 says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Those are Christ's words. He defines eternal life as a relationship with the Father. By implication, that means the definition of eternal death is a lack of relationship with the Father. And because that's what we deserve, having no relationship to a holy God, that's what Christ had to experience. He had to have that full lack of relationship with the Father in order to experience our punishment. And what hits me even harder is not the part where he cries out, why have you forsaken me? But the part that comes before that, where he says, Eli, Eli. That means my God. Now, if you go back and look in the Gospels, 
This is the first time Jesus refers to God the Father as my God. Every other time, it's Father. I and my Father are one. I speak only what the Father gives me. I'm here to do my Father's command. Even when he was a boy at the age of 12. Remember that story? His family goes up to Jerusalem for the feast. They leave with everybody else. They think Jesus is with them. He's not. They finally realize it. They turn around. They go back to Jerusalem. They find him in the temple. Mary confronts him and says, why did you do this? And even as a 12-year-old boy, Jesus' answer was, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Always father, until he gets to the cross. And then the only way he can relate to God is as a holy God pouring out judgment on a sinner. That's all he's got. My God, my God. That expresses the brokenness of his relationship. Now it's a quote from Psalm 22, 1 and 2, although I don't like to term it a quote. Jesus wasn't quoting David. This was going to be Jesus' cry, whether David spoke it or not. The Spirit merely gave it to David to instruct the Jews about what was coming. So he just gave Jesus' quote to David before Jesus spoke it. Nonetheless, it's Jesus's. Now we're told this cry was at the ninth hour, right at the end of the darkness period. That brings us to the next response. Jesus' last words show his obedience. In Mark and Matthew's account, they merely say this, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. That's verse 37. But we need to understand what else has happened on the cross in order to understand those in in context, so here's a quick summary. Jesus was put on the cross at 9. We know darkness was from noon to 3. And as most of you are aware, there's seven statements recorded in the various Gospels for us while he was on the cross. The first is in Luke 23, 34, where Jesus says, maybe even as they are affixing him to the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Next, John tells us that shortly after Jesus was put on the cross. He again suffers through his personal pain by pulling up on the nails and scraping his back on the board. And he looks down at He looks down at John and says, "Take care of my mom." Then we know that one of the the criminals that was insulting him not long ago repents. We'll talk about that in a few moments. Jesus responds to him. Then we have the period of darkness, and then we get to what we just read at the ninth hour, where Jesus cries out in his broken state in front of a holy father. But now we have his final words. John tells us that the first thing Jesus says after the darkness has lifted is, I thirst. We know it's after the darkness is lifted because after Jesus said this, someone gives him some wine on a sponge. They couldn't have done that if it was still dark. So the lights have been turned back on. Jesus says, I thirst, and this time he accepts the wine. He does this because after six hours on the cross, he's dehydrated, his mouth is parched. You can read about that in Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. And so he needs something to wet his mouth to even be able to speak. He accepts the wine that's offered this time because it's not the wine that has myrrh in it. It says it was sour wine or wine mixed with vinegar. That was the drink of the Roman soldiers. 
The reason there was some on hand to give Jesus six hours after his crucifixion is because that's what the Roman soldiers were drinking. It has no myrrh in it, so he accepts that. And the reason he accepts that is because he has two statements that he is going to shout with authority. He's preparing himself. And in John 19.30, the next thing Jesus cries out shortly after the lights have been turned back on and he has received all of God's holy wrath is to telestai. It is finished. This is Jesus proclaiming his full and complete obedience to the Father. He's saying, you gave me a task to perform and I willingly, completely, and thoroughly accomplished it. At great personal cost to myself, but out of love for you, Father, and love for my people, it is finished. Having said this, the last cry of Jesus, again with a loud voice, we're told in all the Gospels, is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He willingly surrenders what is left because he not only has to experience spiritual death, but physical death. He says, having completed the work that you gave me, I'm ready. I give myself over. Jesus said this is how it would be in John 10, 17. Jesus speaking says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Jesus says, I'm doing this all on my own. I stayed on the cross during all of the judgment because that's where I wanted to be. The response of the Son. And finally, the last response we see from God is the veil, verse 38. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now after Jesus has just died on the cross, he has gone through the judgment, he's gone through the suffering, He said, I I did everything you asked me to do. God himself rips the veil in two. Now you recall this veil was a sign of separation between where God put his place of dwelling all the way back to the tabernacle wandering in Egypt. He said, when you build the tabernacle, you got to build this one room, the Holy of Holies. Nobody goes into it except once a year. Put the ark in there. That's where my place is going to be. And because I am a holy God, you can't come in. Hang a veil in front of it as a separation. Exodus 26, 32 was the original directions for the tabernacle. You shall hang up the veil under the clasps, shall bring in the ark of the testimony there within the veil, and the veil shall serve for you as a partition between the holy place and the holy of holies where I dwell. And a few weeks ago, Jonathan Anderson spoke to us about the Day of Atonement from Leviticus 16, right? The one day a year that the high priest could enter beyond that veil and go into God's presence and what was involved in that. But in Leviticus 16:2, God, as he's giving those directions, reiterates the seriousness. And it says, The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark, or he will die for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. This veil is a symbol of the separation between a holy God and a sinful people. God says, look, you and I, we can't be in the same place. We can't coexist 
because of what you are and what I am. There's a, a separation here. And when you think veil, don't think curtain, right? Sometimes it's translated curtain. It's not a thin piece of fabric like you and I hang over our windows. Based on the dimensions of the Holy of Holies, this thing was 30 to 38 feet tall. It was a woven rug, not a thin piece of material. Historians tell us that it was probably several inches thick and 38 feet tall. This thing weighed a ton. You couldn't rip this sucker. And yet that's what the Father did after Jesus is done on the cross. He rips it from top to bottom. That's significant. God is saying, look, this work that allows you to be with me, you didn't work your way up. This isn't something you did. This is from me to you. This is top down. Father to children. I'm removing the separation because the Passover lamb I just sacrificed on the cross That changes everything. That separation between a holy God and a sinful people that you've had all the way since the beginning of your nation is no longer required. It's finished. This is God's acceptance of the work of the Son. He's saying, yes, Jesus, you just cried out, it's done. I agree. We don't need this anymore. The veil is shredded. Hebrews 10, 19 and 22 says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, right? Before, if they entered, they were probably going to die. That's not the case anymore. We can live in his presence, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. The body that was just sacrificed on the cross was the veil. It was broken, and the veil is torn. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. God now says, come on, you're welcome. Before, you weren't welcome here in my presence. Now you are. Draw near. God accepts the work of Christ on the cross. And based on that, the last responses we get are a few responses that are not the same mocking responses we saw before. Mark only tells us about the Roman centurion in verse 39, but but we know that there was one response prior to that to Jesus. One of the criminals repented. We mentioned it a moment ago. Luke delineates that for us in chapter 23. And basically, as the two criminals are still insulting Jesus, some amount of time has passed, and eventually, one of them realizes something is not the way that I thought it was. And the repentant criminal turns to the other and says, why are you still mocking him? You and I are guilty. He's not. And he turns to Jesus and says, when you enter into your kingdom, I want to be a part of that. Now that's a shocking statement. Think about what's going on. This is a man dying on a cross, turning to another man next to him, also dying on a cross, saying, when you come into power, I want to be part of it. What? You're both about to die. But he had realized something during that short time on the cross watching Jesus that changed the way he viewed Christ's claims and whether or not he really was, as was depicted over his head, the king of the Jews. Now it's one thing for a Jew to come to this understanding. right? This criminal, whoever he was, had been brought up in the Jewish faith. He believed in one God. He believed there would eventually be a Messiah. 
He knew some of the scripture that had been taught. He had at least a foundation to understand what was going on. But Mark tells us that the centurion had a shocking turn of faith. Now this is something entirely different than the criminal. The Roman centurion wasn't a Jew. He didn't even believe in one God. He believed in a pantheon of gods that were just as petty, greedy, selfish, and immoral as the people that they supposedly ruled. And your only relationship to these gods was one of hopeful appeasement, and you hoped to sort of, you know, skim in under the radar and they wouldn't notice you. That was his whole understanding of people and their relationship to the gods. And yet he makes this shocking statement in verse 39. This pagan soldier, the head of a death squad, who knows nothing of the Jewish faith and has never really cared to before this moment, makes a statement that really is the climax of Mark's gospel. In this gospel, in Mark's account, no one up to this point has acknowledged Jesus as the Son of God. The first time anyone does that in Mark's account is a Roman soldier. An unbelieving pagan is the first that Mark records to say, truly this man was the Son of God. Why? How do you get from a Roman theistic pantheon to there must be one God and this guy that's dead? Remember, Jesus is dead at this point. This dead guy has to be his son. That's a shocking statement. But think about what this Roman centurion has just witnessed. Right, go back to those words on the cross. The first thing he heard out of Jesus' mouth as the soldiers that he commanded were fixing him to the cross was forgive them. They don't know what they do. Now, this man had witnessed dozens and potentially hundreds of crucifixions, and he had never heard that before. He'd heard a lot of things come out of the victims of of crucifixion as they were nailing him to a cross. A lot of things. Never that. He saw Jesus fight through his personal pain to make sure that his mother was cared for. Nobody did that. He saw Jesus forgive the criminal right next to him, who just probably an hour earlier was insulting him. Nobody does that. And he watched Jesus, more importantly, not what he said, but I think what he didn't say. As all the passerbys, the religious leaders, the criminals, everyone was mocking Jesus, he didn't say one word back to them that was negative. He didn't have his own insults to hurl back, which most people on the cross would have. There was no spite, no anger. More importantly, there was no fear. He saw a man hanging on a cross, doing nothing but caring for the people around him despite his own personal pain and showing complete, willing acceptance of where he was. This Roman had never seen that. Then there was the darkness, the earthquake. Mark doesn't record that for us, but the others do. Again, Throughout all the crucifixions this Roman had seen, he'd never seen darkness or an earthquake as someone was dying. And then he listened to Jesus cry out in his final four statements and address the God that had just shown up in supernatural darkness and an earthquake. He heard Jesus address that God who had made himself known physically. And then he listened to Jesus give up his own life willingly. Not because he was done, not because he had no energy left, But shout, 
showing some strength remaining that he was finished and giving up his life. And witnessing all that, this unbeliever with no Jewish background says, no, there has to be one God. The God that just showed up here that I just witnessed, and that has to be his son. Shocking. So the application for us today, what what do we get from this account from Mark? Well, all of us in this room fall into one of two categories. There's only two. You either believe in the inscription above Jesus' head that he was the king of the Jews and consequently the Messiah and that he willingly went to the cross to take your penalty because he was owed none of his own and gave you that righteousness and that in so doing became a savior or you don't. That's it. There's only two. If you do believe that, there's really two things that ought to come out of this. First of all is gratitude for what Jesus was willing to accomplish on your behalf. Now, we all know this. If you're a believer, you know what Jesus did on the cross. You know the basic significance of it. But I don't think we often take time to contemplate what it really cost him. And we see that on the cross. We ought to be deeply grateful. And second of all, it ought to provide hope. Because despite the fact that most of the people that responded to the crucifixion did so with mocking unbelief, some repented, and they were the ones you would have thought least likely to. That ought to bring hope. That family member or friend or coworker that, that you've been praying for for so long and keep talking to, and they just, they're in one of those camps, indifferent, ignorant, immovable, irrational, you just don't seem to be getting through, take hope. And the fact that the two people that responded rightly to Jesus on the cross were a criminal worthy of the death sentence and a pagan. Gratitude and hope for those of us that believe. And if you don't believe, if you are in one of those four categories this morning, if you find yourself that maybe you, since you're here, you probably know something of the gospel, but maybe not a lot. Or if you think you have the answers, you've just chosen not to believe them because it doesn't fit with what you want to be true. Understand that the inscription above Jesus' head is true nonetheless. He is your king. Whether you accept it or not, it's a fact. And everyone eventually is going to kneel. Some will kneel out of love, humility, and adoration. And others will kneel in fear, trepidation, and regret. But every knee will bow. And so I pray that if that's where you are this morning, that like the Roman soldier, you would be willing, willing to rewrite your worldview because of what we just witnessed. Primarily the responses of a holy God on the cross. He crushed his innocent son in order to be able to accept you inside the veil of his presence. That's his heart for you. Pray that you would be willing to accept that and like the Roman soldier, say truly, that man is the Son of God. Let's pray. Holy Father, you are amazing in the work that you do on our behalf. We're not even aware of all of it, but you've given us this account 
that we might be fully aware of what it is that you had to accomplish on the cross between you and your son. I thank you for Christ's obedience, for his love to you shown in the obedience to go to the cross, knowing full well what was going to happen, knowing what it would cost him personally in the breaking of a relationship that had existed between the two of you for eternity past. I thank you for his love for us that kept him there as you poured out your wrath that he didn't quit. I thank you for his obedience that he was able to say, it's finished, I've done everything that needs to be done, and that you as a loving father are willing to open the veil and invite us in, not only to have any relationship with you, but one as a father to his children, adopted into your family that we do not deserve to be in. What love you show in that. May we be grateful. May we be hopeful and continue to be witnesses to those who don't yet understand what you've done. And for those that don't know you, Father, I pray that their hearts, their eyes, and their ears would be opened. They would humble themselves to accept a crucified Savior because that's what it took. Pray that the rest of this day would be one that would be pleasing to you, that we would enjoy the time we have with friends and family and the time to gather with other fellow believers to worship you because you alone deserve it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.